so often in sales, everything becomes a dichotomy. You can only have quality or quantity. You can only sell the paid or sell the game. And that's a really false narrative because the yes, yes. best outreach is going to talk about the cost of an action. It is going to talk about helping people come away from pain. It is going to talk about what's in it for them. So if we are crafting stories and we are, are thinking about compelling ways to communicate with our prospects, it's not make them afraid for their jobs. Hi, friends. Welcome to the WinRate Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. That was Leslie Vanettes. And Leslie is one of my guests on this episode of the WinRate Podcast. Leslie is the founder of Sales Team Builder, a B2B sales training and sales-led GTM go-to-market consultant. My other guest today for this really lively discussion about sales effectiveness, the buyer experience, and increasing your win rates are Dan Fister. Dan is the founder at Winback Labs. And also joining us is Sinjin Craner, sales coach and an expert in rural sales and marketing. Now, before we jump into today's discussion, I want to remind you to subscribe to my newsletter. Join the more than 50,000 sales leaders and sellers who subscribe to receive Win Rate Wednesday. That's right, each week on Wednesday, you'll receive one actionable tip to accelerate your win rates and a lot of other great sales advice as well. So you can subscribe by visiting my website, that's andypaul.com, or you can subscribe by visiting my LinkedIn profile. Okay, are you ready? Let's jump into the discussion. Welcome everyone to this episode of the WinRate Podcast, another all-star cast of people joining us here today. I know I say that every week, but it's true every week. We've got some of the best and brightest here. So people just take a second, introduce themselves. We'll start with you, Sinjin. Tell us what you. Cool. Andy, thanks for having me on. I'm based here in New Zealand. We couldn't tell the by the accent. <laughs> I'm actually English by birth, but it's, oh, really? a, it's a mongrel accent now. But yeah, I, I, spe I specialize in the rural and agribusiness sector, and I train rural sales teams and rural sales managers to basically improve their sales performance using psychology. So I am very aligned with what you teach and preach, Andy, and being the best human and showing up for yourself and being sold on yourself. And uh, yeah, that's what I do. And I sort of run around New Zealand, Australia, talking to sheep and beef farmers and dairy farmers. And we are starting to do a bit in the US and then in the UK. And uh, yeah, it's just great to be here. Yeah. And you said you're just recently like in the middle of Australia somewhere. It hasn't rained there much since april so yeah we've we're facing down some some interesting times yeah food Got production it. is we knew from covid it's a big thing right and you have your own podcast i do yeah and i think you graced me with your presence on it it's called I the have, rural yes. sales. yeah it was great to have you on there it was called the rural sales show and we talked to really bright blokes and boys and girls just like us excellent all right people check that out dan i am in canada on the other side of the world uh, a number of years ago, I founded, I co-founded a, a business and we did really well for a number of years. And then in 2016, the wheels came off and we had grown north of 50,000 customers. So we were doing okay. And then everything started, we, attrition just went through the roof. I did a win back campaign. It was crazy successful. I'd never made so much revenue in such a short period of time, such a low cost. It was not, so I just became infatuated with it. I did a win back study because I wanted to learn more. I started a win-back business. I started a win-back podcast. And now I'm doing writing a win-back book called Million Dollar Win-Back to share what I learned. 
Perfect. And name of your podcast? The Winback Marketing Podcast. Excellent. I knew Winback was going to be in there somewhere. Leslie. <laughs> Fascinating. Okay. I went into this not knowing much about either of you, Jen. And now I'm extremely excited to, to learn from both of you. But I am Leslie Vanette. I run a sales-led go-to-marketing agency. So I come in and help teams when they know something is broken with their outbound, but they aren't sure what. I diagnose, help create repeatable processes to fill those gaps, and then work on both skill sets and mindsets to upskill the team so they can execute against those new processes. And Leslie is, yeah, pioneer in sales talk, right? Sales for, yes. TikTok for sellers, sales talk. Yes, yes. I also have over 30,000 followers on TikTok, and I was the first person to embrace TikTok for business for B2B sharing tips, tricks via video when everybody was very confident that I would fail because it was only for children and dancing. <laughs> yeah, I keep thinking, gosh, I should I should really dabble in that, right? I this, you know, this new book coming out next year, and it's just like, men, like, <laughs> I think it's my daughter who works with me says, I don't know, not sure there's, a, I think, yes. not sure an old guy like you TikTok, but I may try it. You were saying, I, Leslie? Yes, I vote yes. It's a 100% okay. yes. You are an exceptional storyteller, and there is a huge appetite for storytelling on that. I think that your like, craft for the auditory would try well to TikTok. All so right. It's a vote yes for all okay, follow you. All right. You, okay, good. Well, maybe you could be my TikTok coach. So, Dan, I'm I'm fascinated by this topic. Fascinated by this topic of win back. So I want to I want to start by talking about that. So let's go back to your business. You said the wheels fell off in 2016. Why did the wheels fall off? Attrition just went through the roof. And what type of business? First of all, it's it was a business book summary. It was a, a business book summary provider, and we also did leadership programs. Anything where we just got like we condensed knowledge of leading experts, basically. And so this idea of winbacks is just so people understand, it's just as, as it sounds like, as you're going to people that were previous or companies or previously clients or customers yeah. and saying, look, here, this represents a market opportunity for some reason or another. We're no longer doing business with them, but we did. Hey, shouldn't we go back and see if there's an opportunity to business with them again? Exactly. And I never went back to these people. I reached out three times. We lost somebody. I reached out three times. Like I, I threw out an email, right? I really didn't want to engage people who'd left because they left. They didn't want what I had to offer anymore. So there you go. And we also had pretty strong retention. Let let me ask for a second. Were you kind of pissed off they had left them? Yeah, we had, we did a deal with a big um, mutual fund company and we just serviced the crap out of them. I mean, we bent over backwards for them and we had them for five years and then all of a sudden we were gone. It was just like, this is nuts. And what's interesting is that we don't know why people leave. We've got no idea. They're not going to, if we don't ask, they're not going to tell us. Right. I wasn't asking. I felt kind of a little pissed and a little hurt. So, and it was funny because about three years later, the gentleman who was our contact at this place went to another large mutual fund company. He contacted us and he told us what happened. And we got the contract in like, Two weeks, right? He already, right. they already knew we, we would do what we said. They already knew what we offered. So it was a very fast deal. But the point is that if I would have reached out at the time, I would have got an idea of why 
they left. And most of our clients were much smaller, right? Like we had some like IBMs and stuff, but 90% of our customers were, were individuals like, and uh, yeah. So anyway, did I answer your question, Andy, or? Um, yeah. Well, I'm just, I, yeah. Cause I'm, what I'm interested in is this idea is that when we put together your marketing campaign or our sales campaign or sales plans for the, let's say the next year, and we look at the segments that we can go after is I can only recall once with companies I've consulted with and so on where, yeah, a deliberate part of the plan was let's go back to previous customers and talk to them. So yeah, I'm really fascinated with this idea and really want to get your, so your sense of is like, is there a specific interval you should wait or yeah, do you really need to, as part of the prerequisite, making sure, which I presume it is, make sure you really understand why they left in the first place. So first of all, you really have to get an understanding of them. If you don't understand then you're just throwing discounts or something else to win them back. And that's kind of short term. If, when you understand why they've left, when you understand what it'll take to get them back, or at least what, what they tell you, right? Mm -hmm. You can go and, and you can work that and find out what the reasons why. Okay. So you get an understanding. They tell you, we'll come back because of X. So you go and you give them X and half of them come back and half of them don't. So then you do a win-loss analysis and mm -hmm. you find out the people who came back, why did they come back? And then you do the loss analysis. Why, why didn't they come back? So now you know the real reasons why that's what you do in the beta, right? So now you go to your whole group and you've got a really strong idea of what it will take to win them back. You plug the holes that are pluggable, right? The reasons mm -hmm. that they lacked, if they, if there, if there was for a reason like that. And what we found is in my study, about 26% of people come back. And that was for small to medium-sized businesses. I don't have numbers for enterprise. Harvard, there's a, a study done by V. Kumar uh, that was published in the Harvard Business Review in mm -hmm. March of 2016. 40,000 lost customers. And what they found was 31% came back. So that range is, you know, it was pretty, re pretty representative. Marketing Metrics did a study that Jill Griffin talked about, and they said the probability of winning back a past customer is 20 to 40%. I can't find that, but Jill mm -hmm. Griffin is a real expert, so I trust that it's, it's real. Um, okay, so there's lots of people come back if you approach them well, and you can't guess because you know, there was a study done uh, by this uh, professor uh, in mm -hmm. Chicago, and he found that people only 20% of the time, can you guess what they're thinking. And even for family members or spouses, it only goes up to 30%. So we don't have a clue why customers leave. And uh, Patrick Campbell, a profit, well, I guess of Paddle now, he did a, he has got, he's got some pretty amazing data. And he says like 40% of the time when people leave, it's got nothing to do with you. So what's it to do? Well, they could have been lured away by a competitor. They could have had a change in leadership and they brought in their preferred vendor. There's all kinds of reasons. Okay. But, but even if they were unhappy with you, you want to talk to those people. Those are the, that's where the gold lies. And Bill Gates said, there's no greater source of learning than from an unhappy customer. I butchered the quote, but. No, I, I agree. Yeah. It's, but it's, this is sort of, to me, is sort of endemic to sales these days. This is one of the sponsors of this program. It's going to call Close. That has a great platform for doing win-loss analyses. And it's just sort of shocking to me just how few companies are really doing this, the numbers increasing, but it's like, just don't talk to their customers, whether it's win-loss analysis or whether it's a lost customer, to your point, analysis. It's like, what are we afraid of learning? 
Yeah. I've talked to a lot of people about this when I've got different answers, but one of them is it's company culture. This is the way we do things here. And, and it's we don't, provincial. we don't talk, we don't talk to customers. We don't talk to the thing. That, we don't worry about the past, right? If we lost and we don't care to find out why. Well, when we built this company, it was all about acquisition. The next step was upselling. And then after that, we wanted to increase retention. That's our magic recipe for success. And we're going to keep following that. I, on my, on my podcast, I interviewed a gentleman named Carl Adamson. He wanted like all the salespeople, they got all the, this is when he was younger, he's just starting out. All the salespeople were, had the nice cars, they were making the big money and he was a buyer. And so he wanted to get into sales. So he talked to the sales manager and said, listen, give me a shot. And the sales manager gave him these six dead accounts that nobody would ever touch again, mm-hmm. right? But none of them would ever come back. The first one Carl did, he went back and he got it. The order was six times the normal size of an order. And so he got called into the CEO's office and he was expected to get this. Like, we found this great new source of revenue. Congratulations. No, they chewed him out. And the sales manager almost got fired for giving him that opportunity. Because? Because this isn't the way we do things here. <laughs> Leslie, is that so I've got all I've got all kinds of stories like that, but that's what it boils down to. This, it's cultural. Yeah. I said, Leslie, does that sound familiar at all? That's just not the way we do things here. I think, Andy, that for revenue leaders and their teams, there is a very real fear of getting feedback and finding out that they are the problem. And it resulting in a write-up or a termination or having other accounts taken away from them. I don't know how much that that is a real fear and that it manifests in the way that organizations are run, but very few sales cultures truly foster psychological safety. So doing <laughs> anything that could put you at risk, put a target on your back, it's probably something that you're not going to jump at doing unless it is taught and trained and part of a process that is the new culture of the company. Exactly. The culture of the company, right? It's, is yeah, our partners that close have done a bunch of studies in this and they, one of the facts that always jumps out that I love talking about is that, that when sellers have a deal that goes to close one or close loss is that when they, if it's a loss deal and they put the reason into Salesforce or whatever the CRM system they're using. And then closed went and surveyed those buyers and talked to them. Salespeople put in the right reason for losing the deal only 15% of the time. I mean, 85%. So, but the question was, and still sort of open question they didn't dig into enough or didn't have time to dig into is, okay, did they just not know? Or were they putting in an answer to try to protect themselves because of the culture of the organization? Mm-hmm. Sinjin, you're nodding. Oh, I think it's, I think Leslie's absolutely on the money around that psychological safety. We always want to portray ourselves in the best light as a human being. And the main motivations of any human being is status, significance, and social standing. So when we write something that doesn't reflect on us well, then that doesn't make us feel safe. It affects our, our pecking order, our promotional opportunities, a risk reputation. And it all boils down to Carmen's law of loss aversion, right? We're going to lose something. So that, that's where I, that's where I was sort of nodding away there thinking, yeah, the reason we won't fess up why we've lost the deal and we misinterpret it is because we have selective bias because we're trying to protect our sense of self and our sense of self-worth, which is a really big thing in salespeople because you need to believe in yourself. You need to be sold on yourself. But 
then that sort of raises a question for me because I was thinking about this is say, okay, well, if sellers are putting the wrong reason in 85% of the time, and let's say some percentage of that is they're deliberately putting the wrong reason in, which version of themselves do they believe? The one that, that lost the deal for a specific reason or the one that lost the deal for the made up reason? And I think this is, I think, is one of the really big issues we have to your point about not, Leslie, about not living, enabling the psychological safety is that people tell the truth, right? When I look at what's happening in so many spaces and I have to pick on SAS, which I always do, but is, you know, we've got this perpetual machine running that's, hey, we're pretty prolific at top of funnel, really horrible at the bottom of the funnel. And don't we think that part of that continues to be that way? Because no one really wants to know what's happening. Right. It always stuns me how many managers and companies aren't tracking win rates, for instance, because I think they don't really want to know. Top individual performers, they know their win rates, but by and large, the rest of the people. And it's, so we have, there really is a culture issue. It has to change us to start at the top. And how do we get the change at the top? I'm interested in people's opinions on that. Well, I think just on that, Andy, and I'm sure Dan and Leslie will probably either challenge me and shoot me down, but. You know, if the manager doesn't create the conditions for safety, we always talk about signaling buying safety, but if the manager doesn't create the conditions where that sales rep can be vulnerable and learn those lessons because pain's the biggest teacher, right? We learn more from our losses. Success is a lousy teacher. Dan's talking about acquisition and upsell and on that journey. But if, if we're concerned or fearful of the reaction of our sales manager, are we going to be vulnerable just like our bar? We're not. We're going to close shop. We're going to protect ourselves through fear of loss or social standing or status or significance. And we're going to shut down and we're going to try and distort that view to protect ourselves, protect our core selves. But if we create those conditions for safety, we can learn just like we do with a buyer in a conversation. So that would be my two cents. So what gets rewarded gets done, right? So if you reward higher win rates, finding that next piece to make that win rate like another half a percent or percent bigger. And if you're celebrated for that, that changes everything. Now mm -hmm. there's not only psychological safety, you've got a psychological reason to go for it. And now a message from Closed. An often overlooked way to improve your win rate is to identify and close win back opportunities. After conducting tens of thousands of buyer interviews, Closed has found that 10% of closed loss deals have the potential to be won back at some point in the future. Now, identifying these win back opportunities early and knowing when and how to follow up could be worth millions. Closed recently helped one of their customers identify and win a $500,000 win back opportunity within days of it being marked as closed lost. Closed automatically reached out to perform a win loss interview when the deal was marked closed loss in the CRM. And the buyer said, well, actually we're still interested and we're ready to sign the contract. Closed is finding win-back deals on a daily basis for their clients. How about for you? To help you get started receiving the value of consistent, direct, candid feedback from your buyers, Closed is offering all my listeners a free gift. Just go to winlosstoolkit.com and they'll send you a bunch of valuable tools to help you get your win-loss program started. The toolkit includes a comprehensive guide to running a successful win-loss program, an ROI calculator, and they'll even perform your first win-loss interview for free to help you see the value of getting feedback directly from your buyers. So to claim your gift, visit winlosstoolkit.com. That's winlosstoolkit.com. And now a message from Alego. 
Are you struggling to make your sales team more efficient and improve time to productivity? With Lego's modern revenue enablement platform, marketing sales and enablement teams get on the same page for continuous improvement. So break through all the noise and deliver the buying experiences that your buyers today demand. Enable faster ramp times for your rep and more revenue for your business in less time. See how it all can work for you. Go to alego.com slash demo. That is alego.com slash demo. Yeah. Well, I think I was just sort of thinking that basically your, we're talking about psychological safety and your business premise, the winbacks, is predicated on failure as a starting point. Mm-hmm. The failure being we lost this client, right? But if yeah. we didn't learn from this, we're never going to have the opportunity to go back and sell them again. So to me, this is like a sort of epitomizes what we're talking about is, yeah, it's probably been asked the question before is because I know sellers like, oh, this customer lost us. Screw them, right? And they get to get this attitude, which clearly gets communicated and received by the buyers. And your chance of ever going back and, and winning business again, unless there's a complete change of personnel is pretty small. But if you... A slightly different take yeah. that I can offer. And it's because I spent the first eight years of my career in a non-subscription business. So every single thing was net new. Right. And something that organization did very badly was create psychological safety. Something they did extraordinarily well was high degree accountability and a high degree of visibility. So as a manager, I was live listening to most of my team's calls. We were going back and listening to a lot of calls. It was also a pretty transactional environment. So things were won and lost pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. But the pairing of a high degree of accountability, because we were really seeing in, in real times the mistakes people were making and could coach against immediately plus the fact that no business was guaranteed we had to get it right every single time we didn't have a year to hopefully get enough value that they were going to renew like it it had to be the time to value had to be immediate it had to be exceptional so we were constantly checking in to see what we did right and what we did wrong because we needed these people to not only give us their future business to refer us to their colleagues because we were selling into the Fortune 500 and we were trying to sell across all of the different business units. And I didn't realize it at the time, but what it instilled in me was a high degree of comfort with that constant check-in to be like, am I getting this right? It feels like I'm getting this wrong. What did I miss? And still to this day, one of my top performing email templates is when somebody goes, or when somebody becomes more of a tacit no, asking for one to two bullet points of feedback, saying, I obviously got it wrong. Can you share one to two bullet points of feedback so that if we ever have a chance to re-engage in the future, I can do a better job? It is like a 90 mm-hmm. plus reply rate. And what do people tell you? The most common things are situation change. So either situation change in terms of the reason that we contacted, got in contact initially isn't really a thing anymore, or their priorities shifted and the areas I would be best suited to support on aren't the core priorities, or some sort of situation change with leadership. And then I would say the second reason that I hear is I didn't listen. 
the email template repeat back like either one or two of the top priorities that I thought were their top priorities. Andy, last time we spoke, you told me that X was the number one thing that you needed to get right in whatever that time block says. It seems like I got that wrong. And often they'll be like, no, that was, no, that's not it. So it's often that I didn't listen well enough or maybe more accurately, I didn't ask enough clarifying questions to get the depth of understanding to hit the nail on the head and give them Mm -hmm. a reason to act now instead of later. And then, of course, the third is budget. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, it's, we've talked a lot on the show about giving feedback and talking to customers and just the importance of it. And just, I was talking to just that actually before this interview, I was doing another one for the show and recording another one for the show. And we talked about, and really sort of building the point you talked about, Leslie, is, and you as well, Dan, is that I learned how to sell from my customers. I look at my successes throughout my career and it was based on, Building the connection with the buyers, where it's open, there was trust there. I could ask the questions I needed to ask. And I was open to hearing what I wasn't doing well and what we needed to do better in order to help the buyer make a decision. And over time, that's, that has always been the greatest instructor for me. And the biggest influence in my career is not a sales book or a sales training course or whatever. It's, it's my customers creating psychological safety for them so that they'll actually tell you honest answers. Yeah. Well, you have to be willing to be vulnerable, right? To hear that yeah. feedback. If you're I, just plunging yeah. straight ahead, damn the torpedoes full speed ahead. It's like, yeah, you're never going to be in a position to listen. They also have to trust that you're not going to take their honest feedback and immediately turn it around to hard right. sell them. So if right. you've not built up, built up that trust and that credibility, even ask, like asking for feedback won't matter because they won't be honest with you. Yeah. Oh, abs- absolutely. Yeah, they're basically telling you to get lost at that point. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. I think, I think, interestingly, whenever we ask questions, there's always intent behind it, isn't there? Like a question is a quest. And the intent either serves our needs or it serves them. And they've got that kind of BS radar on. They can really tune in whether we're serving our needs or theirs. And Mm-hmm. We're hardwired for that. And if we don't make them feel safe and we haven't done a good job on our pre-sale positioning and our marketing and our credibility in our positioning, then you're, you guys are so right. Like they're not going to be vulnerable. We're not going to have a re- rich, deep, meaningful conversation because they'll be unwilling to surface the real reasons why they want to buy or most importantly, also not buy. You know, mm-hmm. we, you know, uh, questions can be really you give everything away by your questions more than your answers because there's an intent oh, yeah. behind every question. It's the quest. And often, you know, that lovely quote by um, Madeline Lennagill, she says, the minute we begin to think we have all the answers, we forget the questions, you know, and we just, we go on sit and repeat. We're so pattern recognition, shortcutting. We go, oh yeah, we know what we, we know the buyer here. It's really important. They feel safe. They get the time to surface, even though we might've spotted the pattern again to let them tell us what they're thinking and using those questions in the right way at the right time to the right people. It's it's important how you ask your questions as what the question is to create that safety that we've all been talking about. Well, I think that to the point you're making, both of you are making, is that, yes, the intent, right? If the buyer thinks that it's just purely for our own self-interest, then yeah, we get a different answer. And this really, this fools a lot of salespeople because they think, oh, they answered the question, right? It's even a lot of times it's like, 
yeah, are you st- how, how, where do we stand on this deal? Well, we're at certain uh, stage four, or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's like, yeah, just because they're talking to you doesn't mean mm-hmm. you're still in the competition. And this mm-hmm. is the, I think the single hardest thing for most salespeople to really figure out is the fact that when you're still seriously being considered and when you're not. How about this as a sense check, Andy? Folks, go to your CRM. You have more than, let's say, 30% of your closed loss marked up as the reason is timing. You probably are not getting super honest answers from. Yep. Because it's not timing. It's that you didn't match their priorities. You didn't Mm -hmm. understand what was most important right now. Mm -hmm. You didn't work closely enough with them to find available budget today for the problem they need to solve today. So I feel like that might be a good sense check for folks. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. Uh, That's so good, Leslie, because the buyer's sending you a signal. And sometimes we misinterpret or distort that for self-interest, don't we? And that is awesome because it's never really a question of time. It's always a question of priority. And it's a signal that the buyer's sent to say, you didn't surface my real reasons for buying or my pain or my urgency or the impact of the implication because you didn't make me feel safe. So I didn't tell you stuff because I thought you were going to use it against me. So I'm going to withdraw back into my shell, protect myself and my sense of self. And yeah, that's a real, that's a beautiful signal. Uh, so it triggers a question for me. It's somewhat related to this is, yeah, it seems like lately I've seen a lot of stuff on LinkedIn about now somebody, had, somebody talked about creating what they called a burning platform, basically is making the cost of indecision or inaction so yeah. high and that you compel people to make decisions. And yeah. That struck me. I, it always, this always sort of has, because I've looked back over my career and sold mission critical communication systems, seven, eight, nine figures. The cost of an action and using that argument just never resonated with my buyers. These are mature business people. They were making a strategic decision to invest significant dollars and making a change either in their business or in the, how they went to market or the products they had in the market. I don't know. I, I feel like this whole thing about cost of an action is really overplayed. I'm really interested in all of your opinion on that. Dan? So you waited for something I didn't have anything smart to say about, hey, is that how this works, Andy? <laughs> Pretty much, yes. <laughs> Jeez. We're talking about vulnerability here, Dan. Mm-hmm. Well, I'll tell you, cost of inaction, it's, I think it just comes back to you know what Leslie said. It's priorities. If you haven't hit their priorities, of course they're not going to take action. And so it's Surfacing their priorities. See, I told you I had a crappy answer for this one. Well, no, but I think it's, but it, no, that's not crappy at all. I think it's this idea is like, to me, it's a lot of that's artificial. And I don't think, go ahead. I, Leslie, I'm like, look up on a topic we actually don't agree on. That's a rare occurrence. Yeah. I, so the data shows us that we are, as humans, significantly more likely to take an action to avoid pain than to get this sort of intangible gain. Are you agreeing with me? I'm raising my hand. Yes, okay. So I'll send you all an article when we're done that from Scientific American that basically said one of the biggest quote-unquote rules in business decision-making is a fallacy. And it's basically more recent research that shows that loss aversion isn't a thing. Very anecdotally. Yeah, very uh, anecdotally. Well, I'm happy cool to landing. share that article with you. But Please do, because I will absolutely eat it. But I think here's the point that I, I right. want to make is that so often in sales, everything becomes a dichotomy. You can only have quality or quantity. 
you can only sell the pain or sell the gain. And I think that's a really false narrative because the best outreach, the best copy is going to talk about the cost of an action. It is going to talk about helping people come away from pain. It is going to talk about the potential ROI, maybe not using ROI language, but it's going to talk about what's in it for them. So if we are crafting stories and we are, are thinking about compelling ways to communicate with our prospects, it's not make them afraid for their job so they feel like they have no other choice <clears throat> to buy us. But it is like, how can we tell a story that both makes helps them understand the costs of not taking an action, like not veering away from the status quo, whether or not it's fair and going with us? And the benefit of maybe working with us as well as other providers or serving it. And like it's a collaborative discussion about, I think, the costs and benefits to making any given decision, whether or not it's buying our thing as the outcome. I think you're thinking Leslie's right there as well, because there's a difference between fear-based selling and safe, and they're completely different. And Leslie, you talked about the word discussion is like the conversation does all the heavy lifting for you. You shouldn't have to use fear-based tactics to motivate your, your buyer. You need to find out what they want. And the way you do that is asking questions that then get them to ask questions of themselves. Mm. And well, sure. Because we know the best, the hardcore closing doesn't necessarily work. It's like when the customer goes, you're right, I hadn't thought of that. Or no one's asked me a question like that before. And you're getting them to shift from their current state to their future state and they're thinking different. And that's where you see that shift, that clip, that flip. And that's why the questions are so important in the conversation, the way they're asked, how they're asked, who they're asked to, because we want the customer to sell themselves. And Andy, when we were on, when we were talking, we talked about serving before selling. And when we serve, we make them feel safe. And when we sell, we make them feel fearful and it elicits that fear or threat response from their amygdala where they they shut down. And then we don't get those rich, deep conversations, which mm-hmm. is where the sales made. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, my original point, I, Leslie, you addressed, I like the, your answer on that is, is, is I just think there's two, it's like, there's several sort of levers that I'm seeing people sort of try to like on LinkedIn that, and you see these posts, get a lot of engagement It's like one is somebody who's selling into loss aversion. Again, my experience has been over my short career, hundreds of millions of dollars sold. No one ever purchased because of loss aversion. People were making decisions because they had something they wanted to achieve in their business. And I think that selling into loss aversion to me is sort of a sucker's game, right? Because the way you motivate and inspire buyers is what are we going to achieve? Not what are we going to avoid? And that's always been my experience. And this is across said hundreds of millions of dollars in sales across six, every continent, but Antarctica, uh, don't know how they'd do it down there. But so that, so I see this, this sort of emphasis and it's being pushed out there. And again, this sort of cost in action, it doesn't ring true to me because it's like, that just, that's not the way my experience was that people made strategic decisions to make some significant changes in their business. Yeah. They're doing it to achieve something, not to avoid something. Yeah, the way you say that though, is like, sometimes you can talk about where they want to be, which is their future state, and then take them back to their current state and say, okay, so that's what you want. Tell me where you are now. Oh, absolutely. You know, yeah, you do that as part much of your more... gap analysis for them, right? Yeah, exactly. It's gap yeah. selling. But, right. And we all know that. Well, all the listeners know that. Yeah. But it feels safer because we're not going, 
oh, well, if you don't buy now, then you're going to lose out on scarcity. And But, you know, we want to talk about what motivates them, what moves them, because we don't move the customer. We're going to stay in status quo. Yeah. yeah. And now, a word from Cognizant. Picture this, your revenue team armed with accurate B2B contact data that leaves missed opportunities and unreachable prospects in the past. Look no further than Cognizm, the B2B contact data provider that stands out with unwavering focus on data quality and coverage. Cognizm's US data set alone offers two times more cell phone numbers than any other provider on the market. And it gets even better, 7 million human verified cell phone numbers backed by a 98% accuracy rate deliver precision like you've never seen before. And if international business growth is on the horizon, Cognizm offers the most complete GDPR-compliant data in Europe, making your expansion dreams more attainable than ever. Customers like Drift have already experienced the power of Cognizm. In just 30 days, they proved ROI and now book 70% of their outbound meetings using Cognizm's cell phone data. But don't take our word for it. Get a free data sample and test the quality for yourself. Head over to Cognizm.com slash data sample to get your free data sample today. That's Cognizm.com slash data sample. I think there's a huge difference between fear-based selling and saying, okay, your, your priority is growth. Obviously, it's not just growth. Umbrella priority is growth. But if you don't grow, if you don't hit your growth goal, the real cost is you might not get your bonus. You might not get that promotion. You might get your head count cut and have to lay somebody off. So I mm. like I think it's in the same sentence that here's the gain. Here's the thing that we're going to help you achieve so that you can avoid these losses. But it's not like if you don't buy from me, I'm going to burn down your house. And then I think some of the narratives on LinkedIn. Have you ever have you made that threat? Not yet. Let's A-B <laughs> test it and see what happens. That's not yeah, a big map. It, it may work, right? I'm going to call you to bail me out, Andy. I'll be there. As long as it's an interesting place. Chicago, I'll go to. Florida, I'm not going to go to. But yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so let me ask this question of people. So in your mind, what causes indecision? Is it purely fear? I have this discussion with people a lot of times. I say no decision really isn't no decision. No decision is really a decision. And that decision is not to buy from you. And people always think no decision is a decision to stay at the status quo. Actually, I don't think that's the case. I think what they're making the decision is, yeah, I'm just not going to buy from you or I'm not going to buy from you and I'm not going to buy from you. Thus, we're just going to hang tight till we find a compelling reason to make a change. Yeah. I think Fear. that's it. It's all about really compelling reason. You can have crappy marketing, be, not be articulate with what you're saying. You can do all of these things. But if you've got this amazing piece of distinctive or unique value that no one else is offering, I think people are going to be all over it. Yeah. Well, but that's sort of rare these days, right? Is for a yeah. product to have this distinct, distinct value. I think it's, that's why I sort of get to is I, as I have this conversation with somebody about, you know, what happens? Why do we get to so, no, no, so many no decisions, right? And for me, the reason is it's, we haven't helped the customer understand the business reason to make a change, right? It's sure our product's great. We do the same thing everybody else does. Here's our price. But did we connect it to what they're trying to accomplish and show them why it made business sense to do that? And when I look at win-loss analysis and look at decisions and why people stayed where they were, by and large, it's because they're willing to make a change, but 
no one sort of told them and helped them figure out why it made sense to do it. You said earlier, Andy, something about the sophistication of our buyers. And I think we can all acknowledge, sort of regardless of who you're selling into, we are dealing with buyers that are more sophisticated than ever, and particularly if you're selling into senior level titles. Well, Those... let, me, well let me ask the question, though, because this, this was something I read earlier today. Yeah. I had my list of questions. Why do we think our buyers are more sophisticated? And what dimension do we think they're more sophisticated? This uh, is one sort of a commonly accepted thing is, oh, buyers are more sophisticated. I'm like, I don't know. They, do they know business better than buyers did 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago? I don't think so. No, they don't know their problems better. Like, I think there's a big distinction between, I think they, this is probably going to be a very unpopular opinion. It'll probably be the, the clip you cut and I'll just get raised for oh, it. Oh, it's the one, yeah, think, the one we'll post, yeah. Yeah, right? <laughs> Buyers believe they are more sophisticated than ever, which means that as sellers, we need to enter into those situations with that understanding. And that sense of sophistication comes from their ready access to knowledge and their ability to look at us in comparison to all of the folks they think are our competitors before they probably ever speak to us and their ability to tap into external communities to sort of sense check their problems. So when they come to us, they feel much more confident that they know what their problem is. Mm -hmm. They feel more confident that they understand what the vendor landscape looks like. And they are showing up with, and maybe it is a misplaced sophistication, but they are showing up with the belief that they really know what they need to solve for and they really know what they think they need to be able to accomplish that. So we need to adjust that we, the way that we sell to accommodate for that mindset. I think, I think we, I, I think we got to help the buyer build the business case. And they might, as you say, Leslie, they might have pre thought through or prepared the business case, but we had supreme value by going, did you think of this? Did you think of that? What about this? Mm -hmm. We pre-mortem that. And they go, this person is supporting me to making the most accurate and informed decision that I need to make. They're helping me. Yeah. They're serving me. They're not selling to me. And therefore they feel safe. And they can, and then Andy then talks around that connection because often the biggest, most important part of the sales process is the person and how they make that buyer feel. And they might think they've got the business case sorted, but often the data shows us it's, it's, it's the seller that's actually helped the buyer construct a better business case and the value of how they're going to sell in up the chain that wins the deal. And that's the buyer experience. Yes. That's the buyer experience you're creating. Because if you and your competition are probably like half a degree separation between what you offer and how you offer it, it's that. Many people said that on your show, Andy. It's mm -hmm. the buyer experience. That's the point of differentiation. Absolutely. To your point, Sinjin. And we, it's, we, we talk, it's, sorry, Andy, go Well, as I, as I like to say, is I challenge sellers to say, okay, so your last deal you won, what was your margin of victory? And they're like, well, what do you mean? We were like 5% cheaper than that. What was your margin of victory? How much did you win by? You know, were you 1% better overall? 2% better? Well, it's somewhat unknowable, but the fact is, to Dan's point, is certainly in, in large part of the tech landscape is the minds of the buyer, all the products are the same. They all cost largely the same. They all do largely the same. So what's the difference? It's the buyer experience. How much better do you need to be? The interesting thing is you need to be better when everyone's getting worse. 
like a lot, of sell- a lot of sellers are getting worse because they don't understand what we're talking about in terms of the buyer brain, the buyer experience. <clears throat> and so what happens, they're burning and bruising and making their sellers feel unsafe. So we have no option but to improve our own game. And the biggest thing I'm picking up right now, Andy, when we've talked previously and then based on what we're talking about now is if that seller isn't sold on themselves, then they will not be able to sell to anyone else. And they've got to be brought into themselves, their capabilities, their competency. We can't do a fake it till you make it show up for our routine. We've got to fundamentally really believe in ourselves and then believe in the products and service we sell. And that's why we spend so much time talking around psychology of self before your buyers. And if anything, we try to almost ban the word selling because Andy, I want to, I, I banged on about serve to sell to you every time we've talked mm-hmm. and I try to be as provocative as I can. And maybe this clip gets binned as well, Leslie, but like the problem with sales is selling. Oh yeah. So we it's need to focus much more on buying and supporting the buyer to make the most accurate informed decision, asking really good questions at the right time in the right way to the right people to surface their re- real reasons for buying or not. And then we can put better propensity in the pipeline. We use the conversation to do the heavy lifting for us, build the business case, add extreme supreme value where they go, these guys are the guys for us. I was going to, your thought, your comment about slowing down triggered a thought in me because it's something I've thought about before, but talking about slowing down within a specific deal, right? Because I think that you sort of enter into a deal and if you're able to form connection, build trust, you're sort of at your peak attractiveness at that point in time and that everything you do subsequent to that there's like a a demerit that takes away Mm. from you and oftentimes i think at the end of an opportunity a deal cycle is the one that one wins is the one that had sort of fewer demerits along the way because it's familiarity breeds contempt to some degree (laughs) and it's i sort of use the analogy it's like if you're watching a a track and field race, like a sprint, 100 meter sprint. And you see somebody in the last 10, 15 meters burst out on the lead and win. Well, what's happening is they didn't accelerate. They slowed down less than the other people in the race. And I think it's something sort of an image made for sellers to think about is that, yeah, from that bright beginning, <laughs> we got to make sure that we slow down less fast than the people we're competing against and be really cautious about that anyway not to get off the track but that sort of triggered that image because it's it'll serve survival to some degree to work your way through the process well i think you when you get too far ahead of your buyer again they don't feel safe they you've got to stay in alignment you've got to stay with the pack you've got to stay with the peloton whatever analogy we want to use but when we're aligned with the buyer they feel like they're in control they feel like they're safe and the biggest thing i see the mistake i see most sales professionals make is they assume the sale far too quickly Hmm. and they don't stay in clarification right and qualification mode i said stay there and it's much to your point andy stay there and don't get too far ahead because then the buyer feels threatened because as soon as we assume the sale that's usually where we get the demerit points well but that's also one of the the challenges that exists or with the way we have sales or set up these linear stages that we follow one after another and they're all these exit criteria and you know, that bugs me because like, hey, here are our exit criteria for discovery. It's like, well, I'm going to keep learning and discovering about the buyer yeah. all the way through to the time we sign the till, order. till they right. literally send the signal. Right. And so, but if you're telling a seller, okay, you're done with discovery. 
and they turn yeah. off the curiosity. Yes. You're talking to a buyer that's going through a learning process, right? You want to be a cheer point. You want to be in step with them as they go through that learning process. But if you turn off the curiosity, you're going to be a step behind or two steps behind. Yeah. And that's especially important with sales cycles getting longer than ever. Mm. Situations change, priorities shift. And if mm. you're not continuing the process of discovery, you're not continuing a curious conversation you might have had the opportunity to win the deal and lost it because you yeah. stayed focused on the thing that they told you four months ago. And that's not the same thing that they're going to resource against today. Yeah. The process of going through, my experience has been the process, the buyer going through the process of learning about what their options are and learning about what the opportunities are to so go through the, their buying process. So whatever you thought you learned at the beginning could be you could be off by 180 degrees by the time yeah. it gets later yes. in the opportunity. And they may still be talking to you. And again, this point we talked before, they may still be talking to you, but you're not in the competition anymore. And it's interesting that point, we're using this word process. Do you think your buyers feel like they want to be processed? Like, okay, we've made this stage and then we're going to exit because we're going to try and close you now. It's like they want to be seen, heard, and understood as human beings. And then when they do that, they're, it's an experience. It's a meaningful, human-centered experience. And that's where they're more likely to create that bigger connection that you talk about, Andy, and confess or surface things that they never told anyone else, which gives you more insight and intelligence to move the conversation to qualify if this deal is going to support the things that they told you that they want to achieve. And isn't that the key, creating that trust? Like, how do you create that trust? And then how do you maintain that trust? Oh, is that a question? Yeah, well, no, I think it's a great question. I mean, yeah. it, it's funny. I was just, uh, again, on the recording I just did prior to this one, oh, my, my guest is a gentleman named Andrew Sykes, who says, well, renowned expert on building trust. And as he said, is that trust largely, the research show trust largely emanates from first impressions. You can build, subsequently build some trust, but those first impressions are so critical. If you show up and you're interested in them and you're sincerely curious and so on, these first impressions tend to be strong. But if you show up and you're just pitching and you're asking your rote questions, yeah, again, you're out of the game and you don't even know it. And it's I mean, so hard to recover from that. Sorry, Sinjin. Well, no, you continue, Dan. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah, it's so hard to recover from that. In psychological terms, there's that primacy, there's that first meeting, which is so important. And the last meeting is the second most important. Absolutely. So if you mess up that first one, you need to really make that last impression good because the last impression is the only thing that lasts other than the first one. Not so it have to be the first one, but certainly the last one. So are you guys familiar with the Daniel Kahneman's peak end rule? Yeah. Peak offender. Yeah. Yeah, people remember two things when they go through an experience. Remember the peak event and they remember the last event when they're making a decision about that experience. And, but to your point, I wrote about this actually in one of my books is that in today's sales world, oftentimes that first contact is a peak event, right? Yeah. Traditional sellers, people think, oh, well, your values as a seller is sort of aggregate or cumulative as you move through the process. And it's like, so everybody thinks when I ask sellers, so what's the peak event? Oh, it's our bake-off presentation or it's a proposal. And it's like, yeah, oftentimes probably not, right? It's probably could be the first meeting. Maybe the example is maybe the customer, I don't know, reached out to you and it's like, 
hey, you got back to them before all the other vendors did they reached out to. That becomes a peak event for mm-hmm. them. And there's one other little psychological thing since you brought up Kahneman. There's a pratfall effect. And that is when you try to recover from a miscue, mm-hmm. people, you actually become more likable because now you've you've tried to, you're kind of like on their side and you've tried to fix something that you messed up. And uh, it's really interesting, all these little psychological dynamics that come into play with the, with, as far as the initial and, and separate wavings of how that impacts how people yeah. feel about you. Well, I think that, I like that pratfall effect. I think that's, unfortunately, it's harder to do virtually than in person. Yeah. No body language. Or, no body language. Or, yeah. Can't spill your drink on yourself. Can't trip walking into the room. <laughs> like, I mean, in. you could talk about ways to make yourself memorable, right? Yeah. Well, you shouldn't. I ever had, like, I, I think he probably ended up buying from me or having his team buy from me like 30, 40 times. The very first time I ever met him in person, he was sitting at a, a low boy, two chairs, having a cup of coffee. And I leaned against the table to talk to him flipped the table, threw the coffee. I fell over onto the table. I mean, it was a scene. Yeah. But it surely humanized me. It was very memorable. It created this space to just be two people. Oh, I agree 100%. My favorite story, similar to that, is I was on my first international business trip, Stockholm, talking to their national telephone company at the time, national telephone company for a, a big deal and flew in overnight, spent an hour at the hotel, got dressed up, walked to the customer's office. And they're in this sort of older building in central Stockholm. And as I'm walking into the building, into the entranceway, I feel this plop on my head and plop on my shoulder, another plop on my shoulder, another plop on my head. Pigeons lined up above the entrance of the doorway. I was just nailed all over it's dripping down my face and i'm like oh my god <laughs> welcome to stockholm right in, in some the, coaches that's supposed to be lucky you all yeah we did get the deal eventually but we ended up being 15 minutes late to the meeting because first of all the guy that worked for me that's traveling with me was dying literally dying with laughter and we went into the men's room and he's sitting there helping me wash off because i was covered uh. in pigeon shit all over my head and my suit and so when we showed up to the meeting and said, yeah, we're so sorry we're late, but this is what happened. Yeah. They were, got it, hysterical as well. And it, yeah, I don't, I think know, we would have gotten the order anyway, but it didn't hurt. Right. <laughs> yeah. But at that point, the thing is we're talking about making a connection, but we so often go into sales mode. Like, why don't we just stay in human mode? Just stay in human mode. And like, like you say, Dan, show some vulnerability. Leslie's made a, a big impression or a big splash there. And Andy was sorting himself out and it's, they want to, if you're confident about yourself, you'll show yourself, you'll show your true self and you'll show up and they will see you. So you then can see them. They just be, you know, it's well, really here's, here's my advice for that. Mm. Unfortunately, wrapping up, I'll get the last word in. It's my show. I can do that is show up like you're not, you don't have a product to sell, right? right if your mindset is you're showing up and you don't have a product to sell. You're just here to help the buyer solve a problem. It goes very differently, right? Just your mindset is different. I I learned this because I spent a big chunk of my career working for tech companies where we were finding customers to pay us to develop products for them. So I didn't have a product. I was going talking to Fortune 500s, 
we're just trying to find an idea that we could read that would resonate. Right. Mm -hmm. So it was all about them had to be and by necessity, them and what they're interested in. Cause I couldn't pitch a product cause I didn't have one. And I think yeah. as a mindset of sellers could embrace this idea is that I don't have a product to sell. I'm just here to help things would go differently. Or I don't have a product to sell, but I want to find out and qualify if the product or service we sell is useful to, you know, and detach yourself from the outcome and mm. just focus on helping the buyer make the most, the most accurate informed decision for them. Again, support the buyer. Stop selling. Yeah. All right. With that, stop selling. Everyone, thank you so much for joining me on this Friday afternoon or Saturday morning, as the case may be, Sinjin. Thank you for waking up early and doing this. So if people want to reach out and connect with any of you, let me, let's talk about that. Sinjin, where can they find you? Well, many of your listeners probably aren't selling to farmers or agribusiness companies, but if they are, go to ruralsalessuccess.com. There's eBooks, there's emails, there's cheat sheets. Help yourself. They're all free. And there's a podcast link there to the Rural Sales Show as well. So it's been great to be here, Andy. Thank you. I have a soft spot for agriculture and so on. So I worked at Apple in the early days of Apple, and I was in charge of marketing to small businesses. But the one I focused on that was the most active at that time was agriculture because yeah. the farm community was using Apple IIs like mad. So actually, I, gave a, I got invited to give a, a speech to this ag conference at Purdue University, which is a major ag university in the United States, talking about agricultural computing. It was terrifying. Yeah. Leslie. Interestingly, the first five-figure deal I ever won for sales team builder, which was a huge catalyst in ultimately being able to do this job full time, was a fertilizer startup selling to farmers. And it was a fun, oh gosh, it, it was a challenging and really interesting gig. But find me not talking about farmers, but definitely talking about everything B2B sales on Link, where I'm a LinkedIn top voice for sales for 2023. And of then TikTok. I know, <laughs> brush my shoulder off. And then TikTok at Sales Tips Talk. Excellent. I've never done a deal with a farmer or anybody in agriculture, so I don't know if anyone really cares about where to find me. So, but if they do, by the off chance that they do, winbacklabs.com, you'll find that study I referred to. You'll get some mm -hmm. ideas Excellent. on the metrics of Winback and LinkedIn. I've got a lot of articles and a lot of posts about Winback. All right. Everyone, thank you so much and look forward to having you all back again. Okay, friends, that's it for this episode of the WinRate Podcast. First of all, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. As always, I'm so grateful for your support of the show. I also want to thank my guests, Leslie Vanetz, Sinjin Craner, and Dan Fister for sharing their insights with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast, the WinRate Podcast with Andy Paul, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You may, while you're doing that, subscribe as well to my weekly newsletter, WinRate Wednesday, which you can do at my website, andypaul.com, or by visiting my profile on LinkedIn. Again, thank you so much for investing your time with me today. Until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone. Mm -hmm.